0: Tool podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qub.ac.uk. Welcome to the Tool in Conversation podcast. This week my guest is Tim Atwood, who is an ex-SDLP councillor on Belfast City Council. Today we're going to be talking about John Hume and his legacy, and working with him in the early years. Tim, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Brad. And when we look back,
0: at John Hume, I mean, my key impression of the man was that he had a very clear understanding of the direction that we needed to go. I mean, there's that I noticed that uh, letter he wrote to what was the Irish Times in 1964. 1964, which he kind of outlined, you know, kind of what needs to happen, and you kind of wonder. It must be a great frustration if you're, you know, you're saying that de- years pass, that decades pass, the violence continues, and you know this frustration that nobody else, you know, agreeing with you, or kind of, you know, this kind of frustration of, of your, your, no one can see that there is a way out of this. I mean, did he, did he come across as maybe frustrated, or?
1: Okay, you know, there's no doubt uh, It's frustration is not only frustration, anger. Yep. That um that people weren't listening to his words. And as you say, you go back and history will show this, you know, you're going back to nineteen sixty four when John first started thinking putting this thing cap together about how you create uh peace and reconciliation, how you create partnership, what type of government th- that could be. You know, in nineteen seventy two, uh you know the the first SDLP major dogmas were towards new towards a new agreed Ireland. You know, those concepts about uh, you know consensus partnership reconciliation north south uh, 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 working together on a common agenda you know were dominant there um, you know but he wasn't without anger you know, he, he went to Harvard in the mid seventies and part of that was to yeah was probably a bit of respite out of the the the, the darkness of, of Derry and the troubles um, and you know where you think well will this violence ever end and he, that was an opportunity for him to recharge the batteries. Get us thinking together, and you know John. It uh, was always ahead of his time. So people always laugh about John's single transferable speech. Now in 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 uh, uh, media training now, people say keep saying the same thing over and over again because people have to take it in. So John had uh, was uh, had a he knew what journey we need to be on. He knew he knew you needed to have stamina, and you had to, to, to commit yourself completely and fully in that. That process, but it takes time to convince others uh, of that uh, of that view. So there was a great uh, steadiness, determination, uh, and focus in terms of what it, and that's why he kept repeating things because he knew the approach that he outlined in nineteen seventy two towards New York Green Ireland and and what was agreed in Sunningdale the basis of the Good Friday Agreement uh, many years later where it was the only way you could deal it you could only deal with it in terms of dealing with the three sets of relationships in the north north south and in east and west you know at the end of the way that's how you resolve neighborhood disputes you have to have um dialogue and compromise and he laid that out and was determined to work hard to convince that um and equally he recognized he didn't like westminster but he recognized you had to internationalize the problem he recognized you had to go and speak uh, you know, some people might say he was speaking to the enemy, but Nelson Mandela said you have to make friends with your enemy. So he was he, in Westminster. He was working on not only his Labour friends, but on conservatives, um, and ministers to, to get them educated about the North, along with the Irish, um, um, you know, diplomatic service. That's what brought the the Anglo Irish agreement. But you know, he had to keep pushing them to fully understand the problem. Europe again, even though that was uh, strenuous for John, again, he recognised the the inspiration of the European Union. You know, that famous story when he was standing on the bridge and and, and when he got elected um, in Strasbourg and saying, how are France and Germany working together in the European Union after the millions and millions of people slaughtered? And he said the men in white coat would, you know, he had predicted this, the men in white coat would have taken him away. You know, he saw the power and the inspiration of the European Union as the, the best example of peace and reconciliation in the world. That inspired him and inspired, uh, you know, to, to get the European Union involved, getting the United States involved in international conflict. Because he knew what message was right, but he needed others to sell that message to others as well.
0: And the one lesson I think we, we can take from John Hume's legacy is, is a simple one, is this idea of kind of, like with, with reference to the Nike, is, is just do it. I mean, he we all have, like, we can give a million reasons not to do something, but he seemed to be a guy who just kind of got on with it. I mean, even in his early years with setting up the credit union, he did not he seem to be very much, you know, there is a problem, Here's a solution. Let's get on with it. Is that is that your feeling of the man? But well,
1: you know, in some ways, John was very ordinary. You know, um, um, uh, you know, I was, you know, people asked me what he was like, and he was actually quite an ordinary. He's very down to earth, easy going. You know, you didn't feel that you were in awe when you were in his presence because he would have very ordinary conversations with you. And, uh, but he he was a man of political conviction. He had great intellect. But, you know, sometimes you have politicians who are great on the big, he was great at all levels, as you said, you know, You know, the, 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 ensuring that especially um, people from disadvantaged areas, especially Catholics, get access to credit by creating the credit union movement, you know, that was absolutely vital in terms of giving people access to a way to save and invest uh, in their local communities and, and, and support them and, and locally, you know. He, 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 John Hume would have been probably a, a multi-millionaire, but he was a good businessman. You know, the salmon uh, factory that he had in Donegal, you know, he, he obviously he, he sold his shares in that uh, early doors. But again, that was very successful. And he used to give staff at Christmas time smoked salmon, mm-hmm. you know, actually there's a the former general like Jerry Cosgrove. Uh, John. One time after, because I said, "Well, did you enjoy the smoked salmon?" He says, "Well, John, be quite honest. I fried it. You know, when John was horrified <laughs> that someone had fried smoked salmon, but you know he's very generous in that way. He he he, he talked about way in, back in the sixties about bottling water. Yeah, you know, Herb. you know, if he if he had done it in the sixties, you know, God only knows where. So he was a very uh, practical man and getting things done in his local community. He was single-minded. In terms of his focus about jobs and investment, now some say it was too much for the northwest. But he was single-minded. He he realized that um, if people didn't have a job, uh, couldn't support their family, well, you know they were never going to better themselves. Uh, He was single-minded about education. He was uh, he benefited from the first uh, the eleven plus. He was one of the first people that came through that that able to able to go to he understood the value of education. So he was a very much a practical person as well. You know, and you know I, I, I know in West Belfast um where some people say he was only interested in dairy for jobs um you know the biggest uh, company in business in West Belfast now owned by Huda Maki was Delta Print and Packaging and it has about 450 staff now. So you go back to uh, they were building up during the troubles in a very difficult situation Harry Cross set it up, build it up slowly but surely. And they got to a point where they were about to take off into a bigger level. So they were bidding for the McDonald's uh, contract in Britain and Ireland. And they came down to the last two. And I think it was a company in England and a company in West Belfast. And he talked to John Hume. And John Hume says, I'll make a phone call. And John rang the vice president of McDonald's in Chicago and says, look, if they're good in price and they're good in quality, you know, they need, West Belfast need the jobs more than anything else. Now, it may not have made the difference, but it may have made the difference in those jobs going to England or coming to West with and Terry Gross was always extremely grateful. And they grew that business to get European contracts from McDonald's, KFC, and so forth. So John knew the power of uh, jobs and investment in creating uh, and regenerating uh, disadvantaged communities. And he was willing to make those sort of calls to, uh, to try to get the jobs here. And when he went to the States, John was going to the States from um, the late 70s. and uh, you know he, he primarily talked about peace, but he also talked about investment at a time when the McBride principles were dominant and people were talking about disinvesting from areas of need and from the north as a whole, he was saying, no, we need to invest in local communities And the, the, you know the track record of what he achieved in, in convincing people to come to Ireland for uh, to creating uh, European bases is remarkable. And there's a funny story, um, you know, John was not necessarily big into raising money in the States and there is a, when he was at his prime and, you know, some of the American politicians and advisors said when he was out on his game, he was as good as Martin Luther King and he gave the speech in Washington DC and a businessman came up to him afterwards and says, John, I want to give you $5,000. He says, what do you do? And he said, I'm involved in this type of business. He says, well, I don't, I don't want your money, but if you're ever thinking of coming to open up in Europe, come to Derry. And he didn't take the money. But a few okay. years later, that, that businessman came to Derry and opened up a factory in Derry, which was the base. And, you know, that was the way money wasn't important. What was important was ensuring that people, the peace process was top priority. But if you can also add value in terms of creating jobs and investing in areas of need, he was at the forefront of that.
0: So, so how did he actually get the doors. I mean, how did he succeed in America? Was he quite personally charismatic? Because if, if you think, I mean, this guy pitching up back then, he would have been a, a minor politician from Derry. But but yeah, he's kind of over the years, he's mingling with Tip O'Neill and the Kennedys and all these kind of guys. So, I mean, what what do you think got him the doors open? What was he quite personable? But with, with a lot of these kind of characters, what made the difference?
1: Okay, you know, he, he was he was an inspirational figure. You know, he's an inspirational orator. In his in his prime, you know, he was you know he's up there with. Uh, McConnell and Parnell, and you know, in America, people appreciate those sort of skill sets. So, uh, you know, the the the, the relationship with the, with Ted Kennedy was was critical. You know, he did have uh, the worst conversations with the Irish government, with the Carter um, administration, and also with Reagan and Reagan and Tip O'Neill, if you remember, as uh, President Reagan and Tip O'Neill, as Speaker of the House of Representatives, you know, Republican Democrat, they worked quite effectively uh, as a partnership and there was a, there was a relationship built up there, but Kennedy um, was in Berlin uh, one, one, one autumn, and he said, you know, John's the can uh, go-to person about Northern Ireland. so he invited him over to Berlin, that was the first time they come, and then he started going to the States regularly. So, obviously, Ted Kennedy was a, a stalwart friend, Tip O'Neill was stalwart friend, so he, he, he had an in at the, at the right level, uh, at the right of the top of the Democratic Party, and then he built that relationship up because obviously he crossed the aisles in terms of Republicans and Democrats. And he worked that very well. There was a special relationship with Boston. And there was a Derry City Boston initiative. So he was very close to, um, again, the O'Neill's were from Boston. The Kennedy's from, from Massachusetts. So he built up that and maintained that connection. And you know, John wasn't somebody who went with a big entourage. John would just arrive. you know. So John would just turn up in the States, for Engagements. Uh, I, I think Ken Reed tells a story the first time he was in uh, uh, the United States, he was outside the White House and he was looking admirably at this building. Next thing John, who gets in a taxi, says, Ken, what are you doing? He says, I'm just looking at the White House. He says, Come on in. And this is well before 9 <laughs> 11. And John just disagreed, man. says, Right, John. He walked on into the White House, whatever administration was there at that time. John developed that access. He knew how important that access He worked it. Um, and but but you know it was his force personality, his inspiration, his ideas, and his commitment to peace, peace and nonviolence. You know that was critical because you know he would have been able to connect with the King family. Uh, John Lewis would have been a friend, so you know he was able to build up uh, you know a, 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 a contacts uh, throughout the United States, primarily for peace, but also for jobs and investment.
0: And I I assume he was personable in that. These kind of these kind of very famous people, very powerful people, enjoyed his company because that's a big factor in politics, isn't it? Getting on with people.
1: Well, you know, John had, uh, he it could be quite moody sometimes, just like any politician, especially w- working. But he was, you know, uh, you know, he was a great storyteller. He was a great, you know, great singer. Uh, as Phil Coulter said, everybody from there thinks they're a great singer. But you know, um, you know, I was in his company so many different times with the great and the good. Um, and you know, one second he could be pretty uh, moody, but something else was on his mind at that typical time. And next second he'd be telling stories, telling jokes, singing a song, and he'd have these people listening have him because he had that. So he was an inspirational political figure, but he could tell a great yarn and he could sing a decent song. So, you know, those sort of qualities uh, are very important. And Clinton talks about this, you know, the, the number of times that, that they could sing. And also, a wee, a wee, a wee drama too as well, like, you know, the the, the infamous stories of people arriving um, into Derry or wherever, and they'd, they'd go out for a few glasses of whiskey. And, you know, Pat Hume tells the stories, or the Hume family tells the stories of they didn't know who was going to be in their house when they woke up the next morning, from what part of the world, you know. So it was, Tip O'Neill would have travelled into Derry on a number of occasions, and he was very thorough. There's a great story, you know. He, he Tip O'Neill, came over to Derry one time, and uh, uh, one day John says, "Right, I'm going to meet you in the Guildhall, but no, uh, no police escort." And Tip got in the chair, car, and they headed out towards Donegal. And Tip says, "Where are we going?" He says, nope, "Not telling you." And he uh, kept going. and Tip then thought he was going to meet some of the I said, I don't want to be there. He said, "No, no, no," and they headed out. And then they took away, uh, took away sh- uh, uh, side track up the road, and this old dilapidated cottage. And he started out. To, I think the guy was called Sean. Sean, come out here. And he turned to to, to, to me. This is your closest relative, in Ireland. So it, the family trees were absolutely critically important. So not only did he, um, you know, t- 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 tell the great political story about the need for change, peaceful change here. He sang the songs. He was good company, but he also did those small things, which are very through the family trees. the The follow up story of that is obviously after Tip O'Neill, you had Tom Foley, uh, another Democratic speaker. Um, the next Democratic speaker was Newt Gingrich, if you remember, and of course every um, St. Patty's Day, the Speaker's lunch, uh, John would be sitting next to Tip O'Neill, Tom Foley, and then Newt Gingrich, and Nick Newt Gingrich says, John, you must be disappointed that there isn't an Irish man in the speaker's chair anymore. And he said, well, what's your family tree? And Gingrich says, Gingrich, 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 Gingrich. So well, that was paused. A year later, he sits down. He says, remember last year you had a conversation Said said, you know, this point there's no Irish links to the speakers, he says. And he had the family tree of his wife. And he'd find an angle that there was a Brennan in way, way back. And he says, you're Irish. New Congress, so all those very really small things endear yourself to, and he knew that by building relationships and consolidating them um, through all those means could only help in the end. And obviously, it proved uh, uh, true because John uh, was a huge figure in US, U.S. and international politics that he used to focus on uh, at the at the critical times, like the Good Friday Agreement, to get it over the line in in, in those dark days.
0: But it also shows kind of foresight and thinking that this, because we're very dismissive sometimes, I think, of Irish-Americans and plastic patties and all this here, and we don't really make enough of these kind of connections, because people say, like, like St. Patrick's Day in America, any country would kill for that access and that PR and the coverage, and... Even now, I mean, I, I don't think we you know, the, the current assembly in Stormont makes enough, really, of the, of these kind of connections that we have with America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. And John Hume, he seemed, he seemed to get that very early, the importance of utilising these kind of connections abroad.
1: No, oh, I did. As I said, he, he started with the Carter regime. There was a relation with Reagan, Tip O'Neill. He understood the importance of those communications, and even today, you know, uh, you know, the trail is left behind. You, but the Irish have access to, the, to the the Capitol Hill and White House that other prime ministers and presidents would just dream of. And there's there's very, very many famous stories where you know the, the president here, a president there, a prime minister have been trying to get in to see uh, a president of the United States, of America and they can't get in. And the next second, you know, the minister of foreign affairs, a Taoiseach walk in. Uh, you know, and they're welcomed and, and open arms so that access is very important again, John, part of John's single transferable speech in America, and here he says he says there's 42 million people who claim to be Irish in the United States of America, he says if they all spend one or ten dollars each on, on you know, jobs or buying things from Ireland, the power of that, so he, he understood the power of Irish America, and they, they weren't were. obviously all Democrats, you know, because you know, the, 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 that, that's a mm-hmm. misnomer. But there's many of them are Republicans as well, but he managed to, um, you know, build that alliances and worked it to the benefit of the North, both politically and in terms of investment. And I think there's lessons to be learned. You have to work hard. He, he had enormous stuff. And again, you have to remember, this wasn't an organization. You know, John really worked the states by himself. You know, you know, Seamus Malin and Eddie would have had some connections in Chicago and Pittsburgh. But John really worked political America by himself and he literally just arrived you know there was many of the time he just would arrive in the states and people would drop tools friends of him to, to guide him around the different meetings that he was organizing so it wasn't like you know uh, a minister arriving in, a, in yeah. a limousine and 10 15 advisors John very much did it in himself so that that, that took that, that took time and pressure you know there's the famous story about you know pat Tume, you know John says pat Tume is uh, you know she just he pushed me around the world, you know. Um, but he, you know that takes a lot of stamina. Like, like people are critical now of ML- When there was MLAs and councils, they were critical of double job. And John was um, an MP, an MEP, and travelled the world. Um, but you know he used those positions to absolute maximum um, in terms of using that influence for positive change in Ireland.
0: Because with that amount of time away, I mean. It, it must have taken a lot out of him, it. It must take a lot out of it. the family and Pat, I suppose, if i being away so often.
1: Well, you know, that's inevitable. You know, um, at the funeral, uh, I helped out with the practicalities of the funeral, and one of the daughters said, uh, You know, the public had John Hume for 50 years, we have him now, and we want, uh, we're trying to organise a, an appropriate but family funeral because, you know, he was away a lot. just you know even going to westminster or brussels yeah. you know it takes in those days you know it takes time out going to america takes time out and obviously you know during the difficult, they, they still lived in the bog side and there was very many difficult days pat hume was is uh, in her own right a, a powerful political operator a brilliant community activist a great counselor um uh, worked in john's constituency office but she was bringing the children up at the same time and there was there was very difficult moments when there was one moment when um, Republicans put a uh, brick through the window and then threw a padlock into the living room. So, and John was away somewhere doing political meetings. So it was it was a very challenging time for the family. But um, you know, so uh, yeah, credit goes out to Pat who's a saint and everybody eyes And you know, and, and, and it's, it's great to see that some of the on the, with the many tributes about John, there was tributes about Pat, because you know she held things together for the family, but had. You know, exceptional political insights, um, and was a brilliant political political partner to, to John throughout very very difficult times.
0: He he was kind of renowned for these kind of solo runs and, you know, just kind of going off and doing things on on his own. I mean, did did that cause problems with the party? And I mean, what kind of leader? Because obviously he's a very charismatic. Individual, but in terms of like leadership and party structure and all the kind of more the managey side of things, was he not a bit poor on that side? Was he kind of more doing yeah, his thing?
1: You know, you know, can, every political party can do things better and differently. Um, but you know, John's message didn't change. You know, people. You know, the SDLP message from his foundations and, and John's message didn't really change dramatically over the uh, the period is 50 years old today obviously um, it, 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 it it didn't change remarkably there was tactical changes but people knew what the SDLP stood for you know absolute solid um, commitment to peaceful non-violent change and that never altered um you know at different times when you're trying to move the process forward um, and engage with you know the with governments and um, and combatants ex-combatants and other political parties that can bring us challenges, but you know, John had a singular focus. Um, you know, like any political party, our relationship was always perfect, absolutely not. Um, you know, there was difficult times, obviously. Um, after um, Grey Steel and the Shango bombings, you know, people did question um, the, the, the talks with Sinn Fein and Gerry Adams. Um, but, but even then, and you know, I think Pat Hume might have had some that time but if you remember that famous moment a very emotional moment at the one of the funerals of the 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 the, the Grace victims where the daughter walked up to john and she whispered something to, in his ear which was effectively we were praying for you around my coffin last night that you continue with your work to bring peace and to stop the violence and john broke down you know he was he he, he was broken emotionally and physically because, as we said earlier, the travel, you know, it takes stamina, you know, and uh, that just takes its toll over the years. But the emotional toll when you're trying to move things forward, you're engaged in difficult uh, conversations with Sinn Féin, uh, and you have uh, the Schenkel bombing and then the counter-reaction with Greysteel. It was a very difficult moment. But, you know, you know, the families were saying, "Of victims were saying, keep going, you're doing the right thing. So I think that gave him um, additional strength. Inevitably, be some people and John would have questioned some at different times that people might have been trying to uh not be completely honest and have integrity about what they were doing as, as he would have with the British government at different mm-hmm. times as well yeah. and and others as well but you know the, the, there was a singular focus that as John said if you can save one life then those conversations are worth it the people have doubts that's 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 certainly true um but you I mean, personally would you, would you change anything I don't think you would because ultimately, uh, the, those talk, those talks bore fruit, and his uh, single transferable speech after decades, after decades, begin to, to 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 fall. Another years, another other people accepted the principles, three stranded approach. Uh, you know, you know the, the the changes to the articles one, two, and three that you can only have united Ireland through consensus. You know all the other changes that, that were brought about. You know, John and the STLP were saying that in the early 70s, and sadly it took thousands of lives before other people realised that you can achieve more through political means than violent means.
0: Exactly. And on on the lifestyle, because he had a reputation a um, bit of a sweet tooth. I know, he was a smoker, was he?
1: He did smoke for a long yeah, time. Yeah, and
0: then the, the drink and the, and, and the, the stress. I mean, God, I mean, obviously we, we can never predict, but you'd imagine, like, it must all this all these things together must take a terrible Told on his health.
1: And. Yeah, you know, and it was a different year as well. You know, yeah. the, um, the, 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 there's famous stories about SDLP uh, uh, sort of days or weekends away in Donegal mm-hmm. in the early 70s and things like that. But again, yeah. you, know, you know, again, that, it's, that lifestyle, when you're traveling, like we all know, we've taken the red eye to London and yeah. you're exhausted when you get to London. If you're going to London, then to to Brussels and then maybe back here and then to USA, you know, that, that takes a toll on anybody. Anybody young? So John was doing that for decades, um, and it, it it did take its toll on his health. Um, you know, there's no doubt about it. Um, but he did, you know, he had, he had a love for creme brulee. You know, any restaurant he went to, it was it had to be creme brulee, uh, and he had the sweet tooth. You know, there's the. Did f- somebody
0: say he had to bring his dessert first? Is that
1: true? I I, if he, I think if he had a, had his way, he would have creme brulee for starter me and dessert if he could if have his way and even if creme brulee wasn't on the menu the, the restaurant would be asked to go and get creme brulee for it you know? so he had those unique uh, idiosyncrasies but you know, again and, and chocolate and the crunchy part, somebody was telling a story about um, uh, John had to, uh, was going somewhere, parked his car up and got into another person's car and when he got in the car there was a crunchy wrapper on the floor and John just got into the car, and he said to the driver, "says You've got my crunchy." He says, "No, that was my crunchy." He says, "No, that was my crunchy." And then this argument for about ten minutes, about whose crunchy it was? But you know, uh, you know, as John Hume Junior said at the funeral, you know, when he was watching TV, he might have five or six crunchies by his side for the for the evening. So he, it, you know, it, it, there, there was funny moments and idiosyncrasies that, um, that I suppose that I kept him going. You know, we all need chocolate to, to create a bit of stamina. And certainly, John needed that over the years.
0: Just to go on, off on a slight tangent, just because your own views on politics, um, do you think now that there's there's less socialising in politics, and especially there's probably less socialising with people from the other parties? You think is that to the detriment? Because then you don't kind of build up the relationships that John might have had, even with. Because I know there's stories of him; he would go out to Brussels with Ian Paisley and the others, and, and they would chat away or. Uh, there was. There seemed to be kind of better relationships back then. Would, would that be your take? And today we're a bit more isolated?
1: You know, uh, you know uh, John was about relationships. He wasn't he, he wasn't slow to be critical yeah. of people. But, you know, Ian Paisley and John Hume had a very good relationship on many things. And on common issues around jobs or um, how we could uh, create investment, there was a common agenda. Although there, John tells a story about one time being in Westminster and him and Paisley were having a quiet chat in one of the members' bars or dining rooms and obviously Ian Paisley was drinking orange juice and it was very convivial and we are talking away like, what do you think with this scene, And then the next second, Paisley turns out and says, John, never, never, starts roaring at him. And then he turned around and another MP had come in from the DUP with some of his constituents. So Paisley just reverted to tight <laughs> So it was okay in private, but for the public consumption, it had to be still, you know. I I I think that relationships are very important. You know, come back to even the students' union. The students' union, as I said, was the founding of many politicians are not always the best politicians, but there was a level of engagement, through the students' union, a level of debate and dialogue, which is a good thing because you learn your trade, I suppose. You know, for whatever reason, in my view, the Queen's University wanted to get rid of the students' union. Um, they didn't reject the right image or whatever. Um, and they un- they undermined it to the fact that I mean, obviously there's going to be a new building. but part of that agenda is I think they don't particularly like Student Union. and I think that's a pity. We should all be working hard to encourage um, engagement across communities, create um, a, a debate and dialogue around key political issues and things that divide us. Student Union provided that. I know well, as a councillor for 15 years in Belfast City Council, and part of the problem there is that you make decisions at formal committees and when you push people into formalities then there's no room for wider conversations and I always thought it was regrettable and it should have been facilitated where you brought, um, especially maybe the newer members together, but you know more strategically representatives from the different political parties, to have off-the-record conversations, quiet conversations. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of quiet, peaceful change makers throughout the, the fifty years war, troubles. Who very quietly have got together, had conversations to better understand uh, p- different people's perspectives. You know, um, uh, the you know Father Monastery in terms of Father Jerry Reynolds, Alex, Alex Reid, and uh, the the the, the Ken, it's Ken second. From Oh,
0: sorry Ken Newell. Ken Newell, sorry, Ken Newell. Yeah. I'll
1: say that again. So uh, Yeah, Fitzroy. Right. You know, so uh, quiet conversations are very important. So you go back to the conversations that Clonard Monastery and Fitzroy church hosted, you know, Alex Reid, uh, Ken Newell, Father Jerry Reynolds, you know, there was very quiet conversations at a time when there was maybe other conversations going on at a different level. Uh, political representatives, and community, we brought together to have those quiet, uh, almost private conversations, uh, so they could better understand each other. Um, and I know Alex, you know, uh, would have been involved in some of those. And he talks about the late Pat McEown, and you know, how he had a better understanding of the republic mind, Republican mindset, and you built relationships. So you should always be seeking those moments. And I, I think, the, you know, in, in local government, they're very rare. Um, You know, I think uh, there's now party group leader meetings in Belfast City, council. I think helps. But the more opportunities that you can um, create uh, moments where people have conversations about other things. If you recall, I think George Mitchell in his book says that he brought together some of the political negotiators very early doors in in terms of his engagement. And the first thing he says, right, we're going to have dinner, but you're not talking about politics. You have to talk about other things. And people started talking about cricket, you know, Mark McGuinness, John Hume, love cricket, fishing. They started, And as a result, you know, when you, when you, you humanise somebody about things that you have in common, and this was John, John always talking about the European Union, let's talk about things that we have in common, let's find agreement about things we have in common, then it's easier to find agreement about things that we're divided upon. So those quiet conversations where you can build up um, socially uh, connections and relationships um, can help Uh, in moments when there's great difficulty and division that maybe you can find a way forward because you've got a more trusted relationship with your, um, maybe your the the other political party or your adversary in that case. So there needs to be those moments created where we recognise that quiet conversation, quiet change making can take place.
0: Yeah, I think especially now because with social media, a lot of people are are more sensitive to kind of image And we've lost a lot of nuance from public life. Everything's very black and white, and there's always somebody who's going to take offense at no matter what you do or what you say. So you kind of miss a lot of those kind of opportunities that you may have had in in previous times.
1: Yeah, and I think broader there is a need. You know, things have got quite political, even in, in, uh, you know, communities across, you know, people can be attached to communities. You need the independent uh, community workers, the independent peacemakers, we're not aligned to any political party or political organization, who are always there to provide support to communities of whatever kind, and to keep the the the, the conversations open um, in in times when things are bad. Uh, the danger with political representatives is sometimes they close the door and go bad. we need to keep the doors open, we need to keep our phones on, so that people can have a conversation, that says how do we resolve the situation? So, I, I think you know there's not enough of those private moments, and you have to work hard to create them um, at local government level and uh, at wider political level.
0: Now, it is very unfortunate the past few years, and you know with the dementia, um, he was obviously he was, he's not on the political scene. But but what do you think he would be saying to uh, our current generation of politics, our politicians? Because there are certain issues, like you know, over the victims and we've left adrift. I mean, what do you think he would, he would think of the current situation and what his advice would be?
1: Well, you know, he would be deeply frustrated by the fact that we didn't have government for three years. Um, you know, he, 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 was, he always believed it was good to be talking, and for a long period of time, people just weren't talking or were talking, talking openly. Um, so, you know, he, but to be fair to John, if you remember, he always said uh, this conflict is not going to be over uh, with one, one generation. It's going to take generations and generations to build that trust. So you have to work very hard politically. I think one of the lessons John would have said, um, I think Clinton mentioned this, we always knew our process was going to be tested. It's how you respond when it is tested is the key thing and sometimes I think some of the political leaders haven't shown the maturity to respond in a positive way. They, they, re, they retreat um, into their silos rather than saying, hold on a second, we have to think of the big picture. And John always said, this is going to take generations and you have to work hard at it. So even, in my view, with, even with the Irish and British governments, uh, and maybe all of us, like, you know, after the Good Friday Agreement was signed and subsequently all said, oh great, that's the conflict over. You know that was only the start of one phase. It was there was an emancipation of hope. Yes, we we're all optimistic at that moment, but we always knew it'd be tested, whether it's on uh, support for victims and survivors, or whether on uh, actually day to day basic social economic issues, We always knew how you respond is critical. And John would have been saying we have to keep the doors open. You have to keep talking. You have to find a way through this. Uh, but it is it you know it is a travesty. I don't think uh, John or anybody in terms of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, you know, there's a court case today for victims and survivors over the pensions bill uh, that, you know, 22 years later, you know, victims and survivors have still got a very, very raw deal. Um, nobody would have anticipated that. So, um, you know, you know it, it, it's important to keep the big picture alive. That yes, you may have certain difficulties today, but, you know, thousands of people's lives have been saved by the peace. You have to keep going. And you have to think strategically in the long term, and that's what John always had. He always had a vision um, for what he wanted to achieve um, here and internationally. And uh, people need to have that long term vision as well. Uh, it's, it's sometimes people are thinking about today when they need to think about tomorrow.
0: And it's a good measure of John Hume that even with you know the Nobel prizes and and, and the fame and he, he still lived within the community, you know, within the bulk side. and. One thing that I imagine is a comfort to the family is that you know you get these endless stories about how even even when he was was getting the dementia, he would be out and about in Derry, and the people would take care of him and make sure he got home and taxi drivers. And I imagine that must be a bit comfort to the family, knowing that he was safe within the community, and the community meant a lot to him, and they meant a lot, to John as well.
1: Yeah, mm. you know, well Derry is I suppose is a village. Uh, 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 as much as anything and in, 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 a, in a very positive way because it looks after their own. And I always remember the time when Jo, my uh, Patreon went public on the uh, Miriam O'Callaghan radio show uh, to confirm John's dementia and she described Derry as the most dementia-friendly city in the world because John could literally go into, into town, walk around, go into the coffee shop, go in for a drink and there's always somebody there to look out for him. Do you want to left home? Taxi driver? But, Want to go for a cup of tea? You know everybody knew John and everybody was John's friend, so it was a safe place for him um, to walk. Now obviously, in recent years, he wasn't able to do that. But it's um, a mark of the community uh, that they had so much respect for him. And uh, you know, he, and he he lived in the bog side, the, the family home, was still in the bog side. And it was, you know, over the years, it was could be very difficult moments. Obviously, in 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 in, in some you know very divisive moments. But you know, irrespective of politics, everybody had admiration and respect for John, and they looked out for him, um, and that's a very positive sign for the community. But he, you know, John, I, he he was he was comfortable in his own community, and equally comfortable in, in, in with kings and queens and pop stars. You know, and he always he, you know he always had a remarkable way to capture the right words as well. Um, you know, after the he won the Nobel. Um, I was announced that he was winning the Nobel Peace Prize. The SELB had a dinner in Dublin, and I had asked Bono to come out to the dinner to congratulate John. He couldn't do it because there was something else on that night. He says, but will John and Pat and yourself come to to Killiany the next uh, day, for brunch on a Sunday? And, of course, I said yes. And then I had to go and ask Pat Hume, and Pat Hume said, well, we're we're going home early in the train. I says, no, you're not. We headed out to Killiany anyhow, and i cut a long story short. Um. Uh, we arrive at the gates of Bono's house and there's about 40 French students Um. standing there. And uh, as we go through the gates, John says, how did the students know I was coming? I says, John, I don't think they were here for you. They're here for Bono. And anyway, we go in and there was a very eclectic, uh, international um, group of people. Some of his, Bono's close friends, Ali and, and Bono, were hosting it and arranged. And John wasn't feeling the best, you know, Um. And, uh, you know, he he just wasn't well. But Pat was the holding court. But after about an hour, Bono says, John, nobody deserves a Nobel Peace Prize more than you. And I must say, I was worried because he wasn't feeling well. I was worried, you know, how would he respond? Would he be able to just get the right words? Um, And he started off and he said, Bono, he says, you know, you and people in the music industry, sometimes your heads are in the clouds. And I'm going, where is this going? And then he turns around and he says, but see you and you two and your band, you're different. He says, because I didn't win the Good Friday Agreement. David Trimble didn't win the Good Friday Agreement. You won the Good Friday Agreement. You brought young people out to a concert to say yes. You got them to go home and tell their parents to vote yes. You won the Good Friday Agreement. And only spoke for about a minute. And it was a why moment. Bono was silenced, which is very rare. And uh, other people were in tears. So John was comfortable in the bog side. In the White House, in Brussels, and in, in, in Popstar, and would find in, in, inspirational words um, to capture, protect the moment, and in praise of others. So he was, he is, or he was a remarkable man, um, and uh, he uh, has left in indelible in, in many, many houses and communities across the world.
0: Yep, um, and then coming on to the funeral, because my God, it it, it possibly came at the worst possible time with COVID, and it's kind of sad because you'd imagine that if if it had been in normal times, it really would have been one of the biggest funerals in recent history. And I think that he was kind of, he was offered a a state funeral, you think you were saying, from the Irish government, but obviously with with COVID, they had to keep it a lot smaller. So, I mean, it was, was it a a sad farewell or or do you think personally he would have been happy enough just with a small family farewell?
1: You know, obviously, if it was a different time pre-COVID, it would have been, you know, a huge funeral. People say as big as Daniel O'Connell. People say that, you know, it might have been a state funeral. But I think in reality, um, the family were delighted um, that they could host, have a family funeral. Because, you know, as John was, uh, you know, a public asset for 50 years, he was all around the world um, uh, traveling. Um, so I think they were delighted to have uh, you know, John for themselves for those few days. And they were very keen uh, that it was, uh, you know, they, 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 the most important thing to them was public health. They were determined that people were safe and healthy. And they didn't want to create any any opportunities where people might, um, uh, that health message might not get out. So they were very, very firm about public health issues and encouraging people not to come out um to the church or to the when it was on uh traveling from the uh, the home to the church on the tuesday night so they were very 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 and yeah there was a balancing act between you know the family and obviously COVID meant there was very few people able to be in the church 82 people out of the church that's whole 200 but we we're trying to ensure that the public got uh, some uh, you know opportunities to see it uh, you know the tv obviously the candle piece I think really worked well because that was a way of people safely showing their respects for John and I remember leaving the church on the Tuesday evening walking back to Colm Mason's office and nearly every house in the bogs had, had a candle lit in it. and then it went viral around the world you know Boris Johnson um you know the, the government buildings you know across the world people were registered in their sympathy and respect for John but the actual service I think I think it was just absolutely right you know it was a, it was a very poignant intimate family affair uh you know the words of john the poem from aiden who couldn't get back from boston his son and i think bishop donald and uh, father paul Farr and their homilies were were just spot on so they captured um, the, the the mood of people in Derry um and, and and the world in terms of john but the family were able to have um that very quiet moment to to uh remember their their dad and, and their husband so i think actually in the end if it'd been a state funeral the family might have been squeezed out so this became very much the family at the center and forefront of it and i think you know the family were they were happy that was the case and i think that worked uh, perfectly in that in that respect okay
0: And going forward, I know you're involved with the um, John Hume Foundation, or is it the John Hume Foundation, or John and Pat Hume Foundation?
1: uh, It'll be launched later in in the autumn, but you know it's very important that it's the John and Pat Hume Foundation for peaceful change and reconciliation. Indeed, if you remember Father Farren when he spoke, gave his homily at the funeral for John, he emphasised that uh, Pat Hume was not just a wife, not only somebody who looked after him, but was a partner. Uh, was, you know, had a great political and he said she deserves to be recognised too. So very early on, uh, we agreed that uh, John and Pat, Pat was a bit reluctant maybe to do it, but um, I think everybody agreed that, you know, they were a partnership, a brilliant partnership and uh, their role together should be recognised. So uh, she's very much front and centre for it. Um, but again, uh, you know, the Foundation, obviously, is, is about the legacy of John and Pat Tum and their inspirational commitment to peaceful change and non-violence. But as Pat Tum has said, you know, uh, John and Pat are symbols. And what's most important is how we inspire future peacemakers, how we encourage um, others involved in peaceful change in Ireland uh, to complete the, the process of peace and reconciliation here, and also uh, those who are working in other conflict zones. By the words, uh, the uh, persistency, the stamina, commitment to non-violence can inspire other peacemakers around the world.
0: And is there an element of his, uh, the social justice? Because I know he often said his biggest achievement, you thought, was the credit union. So would, would it would be nice to kind of recognise that kind of the practical, the economic you know, side of him as well as the peace? You
1: know, of course. You know, There's so many elements that we've covered in this and so many more. But... You know, again, the foundation is going to look at all those aspects. Um, you know, so uh, a commitment to social justice, you know, and economic justice is very important to him. Um, and those initiatives can be inspirational as well. So, you know, uh, when we develop the programs and other aspects of it, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, it will we'll reflect all the positives of the work that John and Pat have done to inspire others into the future.
0: Okay. um, As we finish up, suppose i mean it is always important because when you talk about these kind of um great leaders we got to remember you know they're they're not born he wasn't born a prince or a rich man he was a normal guy from Derry. and I think it's important to recognize that people listening today can take inspiration from the fact that ordinary people can do great things
1: no absolutely you know
0: um
1: you know john in some ways was a very simple man you know uh he traveled the world he knew kings and queens and Prime ministers and presidents and music stars, but he was very much rooted in his local community. Um, you know his his commitment to community was to community politics and to improve a lot of his local community. We had very little. Um, were you know were, were discriminated against and were disadvantaged. So, uh, those roots were very important to him. Uh, and you know I think the sign of that greatness is the fact that he's he is unique. He's the only person to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. Martin Luther King Peace Prize and the Mahatma Gandhi Peace Prize, and you know that's that's a tribute in itself. Nobody else has ever uh, done that. Uh, but every single penny of that, that, those monies that he won, uh, he gave away. You know, initially it was to uh, Salvation Army and St. Paul again mm-hmm. to cross community charities that support those most in need our communities. Um, that's a, a sign of the man. You know, and the sign of his greatness that you know, uh, where others uh, may have kept the money themselves, he saw the opportunity to use that money, invest that money in those charities that are working to improve um, and better the local communities uh, across the divide in Ireland.
0: Okay. Right, well, we'll leave it there. Um, that's uh, Tim Mabbitt. Thanks very much for your time today. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, if you could subscribe and leave us a review. See you next time. Thanks, Brian. The Slugger Tool podcast is sponsored by Queen's University, Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk.